TG Geeks, episode 141, October 30th, 2017. The Podcasting Vampires. Hello and welcome to another webcast from TGGeeks.com, where Ben and Keith, the two gay geeks, talk about all aspects of geekdom and nerdery. Sci-fi, comics, film, horror, genre, you name it, we talk about it. I am Keith Lane, we're coming to you from TG Squared Studios in lovely Phoenix, Arizona. And I'm Ben Raggington, also coming to you from lovely Transylvania. No, I'm not. I'm coming to you from Phoenix, Arizona. I'm not yeah. Dracula. I'm not a vampire. But we have a fascinating interview about vampires, shall yes. we say. Yes, and those were our podcasting voices. Yeah, podcasting <laughs> voices. What's a podcasting <laughs> voice? Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But we have, this is going to be a long episode. Because, hang on, people. Hang on. And, but it is. It's worth it. Absolutely fascinating. We have the composer of Hercules versus Vampires that we saw last weekend and that we've been talking about for months on end. So hang on to your hats. Here we go. And this time on the show, we have a really super extra special treat. We have with us Patrick Morganelli, composer of Hercules versus Vampires, that was just performed at Arizona Opera. That you have, that you audience have heard us talk about <laughs> week after week after week after week after week. We have we have the composer. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to to join you guys for a conversation. Oh, trust yes, me, the honor I'm... is ours, <laughs> especially after we watched it and. And and for our audience who doesn't know, I mean, we actually, we saw it on our regular Saturday night, and then we loved it so much that we had to get tickets for the next day. And we sat on the front row. We sat on the front <laughs> row for the Sunday matinee, and, and and I actually liked it better. Yeah, it was really, we, we gushed about it on the episode last week, so. Yeah, I mean, we this really kind of gushed. follow up, so. Yeah, we're still, we're still gushing. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that uh, very much. Yeah. So tell us, who is Patrick Morganelli, and how did you get into composing? And, you know, I, I know you have an interesting background, and I don't know if you want to share that, but uh, tell us who Patrick Morganelli is, and how did you get into music? Well, uh, th that's, you know, I'll, I'll try and give you the the simplified version Uh and, um, you know, and if there's any particular area where you say, you know, we would like to know more about that thing right there, we can, we can talk about it. Um, basically, uh, like most composers, I, I think, uh, you know, I've been a classical musician my whole life, uh, specifically a pianist. Um, and I, um, I, you know, went to went to school and got an undergraduate degree, uh, and then after that, and I began working as a, a pianist, um, you know, in my early twenties. Um, 
uh, for various reasons, I decided, you know, I'm going to try something else for a little while here. And I ended up having a rather lengthy career um, in a, a completely unrelated field, uh, which was unexpected. You know, I really did think, well, you know, uh, I'm just going to kind of try this. Ended up sticking around for quite a long while. And, you know, the reason why I did was, um, you know, when you're 14, and you're, you know, a, a musician, and, and presumably you have teachers who are telling you, okay, you know, you're talented enough to, to do this, you know, seriously. You have a vision of what your life is going to be mm-hmm. when you're, you know, a grown-up, oh, yeah. and you're the real thing and all of that. Uh, and then you get to be that grown-up, you know, grown-up. When, when I say that, I mean like 21 or 22. Uh-huh. Right. You which, think you're grown-up. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Yeah, you think you're grown up, and when you're 14, you think that when you're 21, you're like, oh, well, God, I'll, I'll be an adult, you know. Yeah, that's 30, is, 30 um, is almost dead. Well, but you also think that, you know, your life is now settled. I mean, this is what you're, you know, you think, 21, 22, okay, my life is set. This is what I'm going to be, you know, without even any thought that uh, anything could happen between now and then. Sure, of course, you know, and, and you just presume that, well, you know, when I'm 21, I'm not going to feel all of this bewilderment, you know, over my life yeah. like I do now at the age of 14. And <laughs> unfortunately, you find out when you're 21, no, no, you know, the bewilderment gets worse. Yeah, it's <laughs> only more. <laughs> so, uh, so basically, uh, what I did um, was I decided that I wanted to fly jets in the military. Oh, my. That, that and, is such uh, a left turn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it really know, is in I life. Know. I mean, that's like, wow. Okay. I mean, you said unrelated, but holy <laughs> smokes. I mean, that's, that's like in a completely different universe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it pretty much was. Um, and, I, you know, my original intent was, uh, you know, I was that, well, I want to join the Navy and fly jets off of aircraft carriers for, you know, a couple of years and just kind of check that out. And, um, ended up actually having a very long career as a naval officer, um, you know, doing all of that. And, um, you know, and I continued, of course, during that time to love classical music and, and to play the piano. But, um, you know, obviously my day-to-day life was, uh, you know, pointed in a very different direction. And then what happened was, when I was getting coming up on the end of that career, um, I I was living in Washington D.C. and working at the Pentagon, and uh, wow. and believe me, that's a the that's Pentagon. A oh my right. gosh! Oh, okay, I didn't <laughs> see Pentagon. that one coming. <laughs> I know, I know, and and like I said, but you know, I, I could. That's a whole story in itself. My experience in the Pentagon. But, Definitely need to have um, you back on the show. Yeah, you, you should write an opera about that. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm the sure Pirates of the Pentagon. <laughs> oh, there's a title: The Pirates of the Pentagon. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but uh, while I was there in D.C., I got to be friends with some professional uh, string players who were spr- string players in the National Opera Orchestra. I oh, wow. uh, got to play chamber music with them. And, you know, they said, you know, you, you have the chops to do this. 
And, you know, when they told me that, I, I said, I'll get out of here, you know, because it, it just seemed so bizarre, the thought that I could actually go back to having a professional career. Um, but then I, you know, I got to thinking about that, and I thought, well, I'd really have to start practicing, I mean, seriously. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then something very, very unexpected happened, uh, because I had never really thought of being a composer per se. I really thought of myself more as a, an interpreter. And then uh, one night in my neighborhood in the District of Columbia, late at night, I got involved in a street fight with a film director. Holy moly. And what? <laughs> believe me, it's not actually as as lurid as it sounds. It was, you know, it was something that happened completely by accident because Please, I am not street fight guy. <laughs> well, no, know? but it, it almost sounds like the beginning of a joke. A composer and a street film director you know, and a street director meet in a street. I mean, it, it's like it sounds like a joke. <laughs> I know, I know. Now, of course, at the time, I have to tell you, I was not laughing. No, I'm sure <laughs> not. But, but now I look back on it, and what happened was, you know, he and I got to be good friends, and at a certain point, he said. He goes, look, I have a movie and I need music for it. You're a musician. Can you do the music for my movie? And I, I told him, I said, you know, I really can't do that. I, I have no idea how that's done. Uh, I think you need a professional to do that because my understanding is it's rather complicated. And his answer was, well, I don't have any money to hire a professional. So what do you say? Since we so, just got in a fight. Is, yeah, is, is this yeah. before or after the fight? <laughs> or is yeah, it what well, caused this, the fight? Or is, or, is, or is this what caused the fight? Well, briefly, what caused the fight, uh, and, and there's, there's a message in here for everybody who, who ends up drinking too much in a bar. Uh, oh, dear. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> is that uh, I was actually in there. Uh, and, you know, it was late at night and, you know, I was having probably more than I should. And the bartender, uh, one of the bartenders kind of called me over and she said, can you run out front and see if the other bartender needs any help? And I was drunk enough to to not question that. I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Maybe he's going to get a shipment of ice or something. <laughs> so I walk out front, and I see the other bartender is about to get into a fight with a big, super scary-looking guy. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, she meant that kind of help. <laughs> and uh, so now it's the two of us against big scary guy and when i say big scary guy this guy looked like an offensive lineman from i don't know the pittsburgh steelers or something and i'm thinking well okay i have two choices here i can either start crying and run away which (laughs) honestly fellas was looking kind of attractive (laughs) uh you know or you know if i ever want to be able to walk into this particular bar ever again, I have to kind of stand my ground and hope for the best. Uh, so I, I went with option B and then a third guy stepped out of the bar. And so it's now the three of us against big scary guy. And fortunately at that point it became really more, 
you know, chest thumping and name calling and, you know, all of that. But gradually we kind of backed away from each other, uh, you know, could all kind of catch our breath at that point. And it turned out the third guy who stepped out of the bar was the film director. Ah, I see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he and I were not actually pummeling each oh, other. Okay. Like, like, like you like said, that. it's not as lurid as no, it sounds. No, it's not. <laughs> Fortunately, fortunately, (laughs) because, you know, while it was going on, I'm thinking, okay, so this is the part in the story where I go to the emergency room. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, uh, so anyway, that, you know, he convinced me to try it. So I did the best I could with it. And then on the basis of that, I got offered another film by a Washington, D.C. filmmaker. And then another film after that. And then that was right about the time that I retired from my Navy career. And so I thought, well, I guess if now I'm in the business of writing music, I need to actually go back to school and and get educated and learn how professionals, in fact, do this work. And that was when I, I was lucky enough to get accepted into the, the USC Thornton School of Music, where I, I got a master's degree in piano performance uh, and once again, I was lucky enough to be accepted as a student by the uh, the great artist Daniel Pollock. And uh, then after my master's, I did the one-year postgraduate certificate in scoring for motion pictures and television. Far out. Wow. that That's kind of interesting to do late in life. To But if you're pursuing your passion, absolutely. It's encouraging because it's, so exactly. many people, as you said, you know, especially when you're 14 or 15 years old, you kind of think that, oh, well, I'm 21, my life is going to be set. And this is uh, an example of saying, you know, it doesn't have to be. You know, you could be at any stage in life and decide that you want to take, your, you know, take it into a completely different direction that you hadn't originally anticipated. I think that's very encouraging. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I, I really do believe that. You know, there's a, there's a saying that, that I love, uh, if a door opens, you walk through it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it just it just so happened for me that this particular door opened and I thought, eh, OK, I'll walk through it. And and I, I have to say it's it's turned out pretty well for me. That's pretty cool. So flash forward to uh, Oregon Opera. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is this, this is, is the, of... this is the thing that we we been Keith and I have been talking about this one ever and since how we did saw. This happen? How did this whole thing happen? Where all of a sudden, I mean, okay, Hercules versus the vampires. How did this come about? Well, <laughs> once again, as in so many things in at least in my life, uh, this was something that was completely random and completely unexpected. Um, because quite honestly, even though I, you know, I, I've loved opera my whole life, um, as a matter of fact, the very first piece of classical music I can remember hearing as a small child, you know, that I can actually identify was a piece of opera. And, um, you know, so I've loved it my whole life. But even when I was a composer doing, you know, film and television scores it never occurred to me that oh well i should write an opera and the way that this happened was a, a friend of mine who is you know a a tremendous 
film geek. Uh, and I say that with all love and respect. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> we understand. You know, we, oh, we were, no, we're totally cool with that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he and I were talking, and he and I both share an enthusiasm for the films of Italian director Mario Bava. Oh dear, and <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I know. You, you mentioned that name Mario Bava, and there's a whole range of responses. Exactly, <laughs> it's like oh my god to oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, for for any of your your listeners who are listening to this, who who are saying uh, who was that again? Just real <laughs> briefly, Mario Bava was an Italian filmmaker uh, from sort of like the 50s, 60s, and up through about the, the mid to late 70s, um, who was very much known for, for doing genre films. But there, uh, and, and at the time, of course, they were just considered, oh, these, these extremely lurid, extremely, uh, you know, exploitation-oriented, uh, low-budget films. But because of his incredible sense of style, you know, his, his reputation, his star is on the rise these days with, I guess, what you would call cinephiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, he always was kind of a cult hero. Well, yeah, in a way. And, I mean, I as mean he sh- still is, but, yeah, he, uh, but people just, are taking his films a little more seriously. Well, yeah, now. I was going to say, actually, I think uh, in the case of Baba, it's possible that maybe as cheesy as some of his work is regarded – that maybe in some very backwards sort of way he was ahead of his time, in a way, and maybe that's why well, now his work is being appreciated. It's possible, yeah. I mean, that's very, very possible. Um, and uh, and you know, not I mean, not all of his work is is revered. You know, <laughs> uh, no. I, I don't think you're ever gonna. <laughs> I don't think you're ever going to see the Academy of Motion Picture pictures, arts, and sciences do a, a lifetime achievement award to Mario Bava oh, on the funny. Oscars. <laughs> well, they should. You know, I, I mean, he, he was really well, a... He <laughs> did. I mean, he, he did... Um, he, I don't know if I'm going to say a trendsetter, but he certainly carved out his own niche. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So anyway, uh, this friend and I were talking, and he said... Uh, he said, hey, this is crazy, but I heard from, you know, someone that there's this opera company in Portland that wants to, that is looking to take a Mario Bava film and make it into an opera. Wow. And, um, you know, and of course, that was attractive to me. Right. Because I, I asked him, I said, well, well, which, do you know which film it is? And he said that he wasn't completely sure, but he thought it was Hercules in the Haunted World, and um, which is the title that this particular film was released under in the United States. Right. Uh, and, and it turned out that I had actually seen the movie. So I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I can track these people down. So I, I tracked them down, and I got on the phone with their artistic director, and... Um, uh, she said, well, we're, cons- we are doing this. We're considering a number of composers for this. You're welcome to, you know, submit, uh, material for us to consider. And so I, I said, eh, okay. So I submitted the requested material and they and the material they were looking for was rather 
extensive. Uh, and then I was just lucky enough that I was the one who got picked to do the project. Wow, that is far out. We we had wondered whether you picked the film or the film picked you or or they picked the film or or what was how that came about and but that that's kind of interesting that they were wanting to reach out and and do something different like that. I think it's just a brilliant uh, concept and a brilliant idea. So let's discuss. Well, you know, oh, go ahead, please. No, no, I, I was just going to say that uh, you know put in a little plug for the the opera company Opera Theater Oregon. Right. Uh, they are a very they're they're a small but very adventurous opera company that have done wonderful things you know above and beyond Hercules versus vampires and for any of your listeners uh, that are in the Portland area I, I would like to put in a plug for you know look them up online and and go to their shows because they're wonderful great. Definitely do that. It's, I mean, Absolutely. If, if, if we ever find ourselves up in Portland, we'll oh, definitely yeah. check them out. And and besides being a you know a a wonderfully open and and free city, right. it's great for foodies and and yeah. everybody. You know, it's a it's a it's a very interesting city. It's it's, it's and I I really want to go. Quite a bohemian cultural city for a uh, for for the United States. So let's discuss some of the editorial aspects of this. Now, one of the things that now Keith and I have seen the movie, excuse me, mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that Keith immediately noticed it's like, uh, well, they cut out the first like eighteen minutes that really have nothing to do with the film. So, <laughs> and I yeah. thought that was, uh, I I wondered how that was going to be approached for the quote unquote opera. Yeah, because didn't you because say it that, was like, oh my god, well, it's like that is so t the first eighteen minutes is so tedious. Well, but Keith, didn't you also say that the, that the movie is like roughly around an hour and a half? Yeah, and, but yeah. what we got was seventy five minutes. Right, right. So it was uh, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, seventy nine minutes. I think is what it is. Is that what it clocked in at seventy nine? Yeah, for uh, the, the... actually, Go actually, ahead. it's about seventy five. Oh, is yeah. it okay? Maybe with. The clapping and all that. <laughs> anyway. Yes, the, the thunderous, thunderous applause at the end. Of course. Well, that oh, would take a few minutes. Four minutes. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. It it, I, I thought it. I just thought it was brilliant. And and as, as I said, the the first part is tedious with Theseus. <laughs> but I'm <bummed. laughs> couldn't resist. Uh -huh. You know, it's it's all about that relationship and with Hercules and Theseus, and and it's just like. It, it really has zero to do with the rest of the film, <laughs> other than, you know, that they're buddies and they go off on this quest and you know, blah, so, but, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, again, so, was there, I mean, did you have to do Did any, you just decide yeah, to do the, that? The editing, or, I mean. Or did, was that, yeah. who did the edit on the film? The the edit on the film was done by Opera Theater Oregon. Okay. And, uh, and, and the reason... If I remember correctly, uh, the reason why they made those edits was for exactly that reason, because they felt like those scenes were kind of extraneous and they had a very, very different feel to them. Right. Um, as, as I'm sure you recall, a lot of those scenes that were cut out are scenes that were shot outdoors. Right. And and because they were not shot on a stage, the, you know, the the lighting, the the framing of the picture, the 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 whole 
uh, look and feel of it is completely different. Yeah. Uh, and there, there is some speculation that the scenes that, that were cut out for the opera were scenes that were not actually directed by Mario Bava. Really? I'm not completely sure that's true, but it's possible. Yeah, and, and Technicolor doesn't really do well outside. It, it requires well, very specific lighting. and Yes. And, and as you saw, with the scenes that are shot indoors and shot on a stage, um, the, and the fact that this movie was essentially shot in the very early 1960s, the technicolor is very, very kind of hyper-saturated. So everything looks, you know, much more vivid than it does in real life, which is, right. I think, is part of the appeal of it. You look mm-hmm. at it and it's like, wow, that's really, uh, that's a lot of eye candy on the screen. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a, his whole point in, in doing that anyway. I, uh, he, he loved technicolor. So, because so, it, it, it added this surreal element to his films that he could get with technicolor that you can't get with other things. So, so so one of the other things yeah. is, um, did anybody, uh, who had the rights for this film? Uh, it was like uh, the Bava Estate. Uh, who who had to be contacted? Um, did did your music have to be approved? I mean, not only by um, the the opera company, but assuming that somebody else had the rights for this, you know, like the Bava Estate, did they have to sign off on on what you wrote? Well. <laughs> that's that's actually a very very interesting question. Um, one of the reasons why Opera Theater Oregon decided they were going to use uh, this particular film was uh, they were looking around online and they found a list of films that were in public domain, ah. and this was on that list. So they thought, oh well, it's in public domain, so we're probably safe with this. Um, and so that was the reason why they picked it. Uh, and also, you know, in, in a city like Portland, uh, you know, there, people are not that worked up over the issue of copyright for a film that was released in 1961. You know, it's, right. it's kind of like, look, we're, we're just doing this. We're just going to have fun with this. Um, no harm intended. Uh, you know, what's the issue? However, when uh, when L.A. Opera decided they were going to do it here in Los Angeles, uh, that oh. became a very, very different story because the issue of copyright and permission in a city like L.A. is like, oh, oh. You, you, <laughs> That's the first that thing you do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as, as they, they sometimes like to say, you know, Southern California, L.A. in particular, is the natural habitat of the North American spotted entertainment law attorney. Exactly. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, as a matter of fact, um, contractually with LA opera, uh, I was required to conclusively prove. Uh, and when I say conclusively prove, I mean, to the satisfaction of their legal counsel, uh, that I e- that either the film was in fact in public domain or that I had a license from the copyright holder that would allow me to do what I wanted to do. Well, wouldn't you know it, as we began <laughs> digging into it, Oops. we found out that in fact the film is under copyright. Oops. Oh dear. And yeah, don't, oh, you <laughs> yeah, know, don't, yeah. And, and, yeah, you know, and, and then of course, you know, I'm, I'm discussing this with 
um, with LA Opera and with my attorney, and I'm thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe whoever owns the copyright, maybe he lives in Rome, maybe he lives in London. I mean, who knows where? And, and he's you know, in the he's office really next door. <laughs> well, in it. it actually got a lot worse oh, because yeah. when we figured we figured out who owned the copyright it turned out that he was a gentleman who lived here in Los Angeles who works in the movie business the entertainment business and wouldn't you know it he himself has a law degree oh dear oh no <laughs> so it's like I'm I'm sitting there thinking, oh, oh, this is not going well. But as you know, then my luck turned, and uh, I mentioned this to my attorney, and he said, oh, oh, our firm knows him. We've worked with him before. Let me talk with him. And so he contacted the the copyright owner, who turned out to be a wonderful guy who who loves opera and was very very cooperative. Uh, and we worked out. Uh, a copyright royalty for for him that's really very reasonable and so the whole thing ended happily when it could all have just gone horribly horribly wrong oh well that's oh, my that's goodness. wonderful <laughs> wow so, so wow yeah. that that leaves yeah, me breathless wow, it's like what i mean who knew that so much you know and unfortunately that's the nature of the industry i mean we think about what we see and what we hear and uh, but we, we we forget that there is so much business and, and so much law and legality that takes place behind the scenes, and and it's so imperative that all the T's be crossed and all the I's be dotted and all of this in order to make something just like this. I mean, which some people would consider to be a satire, and satire mm-hmm. is is uh, is allowed uh, constitutionally. But well, well to, to an extent. To an extent. Yeah, but but uh, satire. We don't have law degrees. Though. No, we don't have law degrees. <laughs> but I have heard people say that satire is does fall like under the First Amendment or something like that. Uh, so, but at the same time, to have to you know, to, wow, to jump through all those hoops. I mean, it it really just, wow. I mean, that's really an. I think that's a lesson. Yeah. Oh oh yeah, it definitely is. And you know, you're you're right. When you say that, I be, well, I believe you're correct. When you say there is a provision for for you know satirical use of material, because you know that's kind of how um, shows like Saturday Night Live and stuff get away with you know satirizing things. Uh, but you know there there is a I, I believe uh, a legal threshold that you cross if you if you go too deeply into something. I mean, right. if you do like five minutes of satire i think you're okay with that if you say well we're going to do 90 minutes i i think that gets into a different region uh but you know the other question of course is you know what is what is the right thing to do you know and in my opinion and certainly in the opinion of la opera the right thing to do is simply if you if you can at all possible ways uh contact figure out who owns the copyright contact them, you know, honor the fact that we're using their property, work out a deal, and then everyone's happy. Exactly. So uh, the other thing that, that uh, we found very fascinating um, is, and we, this was discussed when we saw you last weekend, uh, a lot of people came into this 
seeing this for the first time. They, they'd never stepped into an opera house before. And I'm thinking that a, a lot of them were under the impression that they were going to be, not only are they going to be seeing something that is visually outrageous, but they're going to be hearing something that is outrageous. And as, as we had in our conversation when we saw you last weekend, that what you, you wrote, serious music. I mean, you approach this from a very yeah. serious standpoint. And I remember uh, before we even heard it the first, first night, uh, we were talking to, to Joe Spector, and he said that he thought the music was beautiful. So that was, I was excited to hear it. And so, so I guess the question now becomes, what was your, why, why did you decide to approach it on this manner? I mean, I mean, I, I guess that's really a dumb question. Um, but, but what, but, but uh, what was, when, when you're approaching a movie like this, a movie that you're already familiar with. And that is campy to begin with. And, and is very campy to begin with, yes. What is your thought process in how you are going to approach the kind of music you were going to write for this? Well, you know, that th those, are, those are all very good questions. And yes, you are correct. Um, I didn't write this uh, as a comedy, you know, and I didn't write it to, to mock the film, you know, to, um, you know, sometimes people would, would look at it and they'd say, oh, so this is kind of like, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000, which I'm sure many of your listeners are, are familiar with, where, you know, they would take some sort of a genre movie and essentially, you know, make snide remarks about it that essentially say, look at how terrible this movie is. Um, that was not my feeling at all uh, for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, you know, I'm sure that any of your listening, listeners who are listening to this, when they hear what I'm about to say, will say, oh my God, Morgan Ellie is delusional and <laughs> needs professional help. But, you know, I don't think it is a bad movie. It has some visual effects in it that, how to say this um, delicately, don't meet a certain professional standard that we expect nowadays. Right. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, but to me, some people will look at those and they say, oh my God, that's so terrible. I look at them and I think there, there's a charm that's in their simplicity and their directness. Absolutely. Well, we're, we're big Doctor Who fans and classic Who. And if you've ever watched classic Who, the effects were, mm. were crap. You know, so. but you just take it. I mean, yeah, you and you accept it, and that's the charm about you it. Exactly, disbelief like you said, and you just accepted it being what it is. Sure, you know, it's like when you when you talk to, you know, a, a young person, and they're talking about, and, and you start talking about, you know, the the special effects work of somebody like Ray Harryhausen, for oh, yeah. example, and they look at you know some of his great works. And they'll say, well, that doesn't look real to me. That looks phony to me. And you say, the point was not to make it look real. The point was that the look of his, his stop-motion animation has a fantastic quality to it, that, which is something that you know inspires imagination, I guess you would say. Oh, it's, it's, it's not that, okay, with... 
if you're really going to have a skeleton sword fight, this is what it would look like. Right. I mean, it's art. I mean, I, 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 love I thought Harry it was Housen brilliant. Fans. I mean, we're we're Harryhausen fans. Yeah, too, I love so, his work. You know, you're you're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, get, getting back to and and of course, I, I agree with all of that. Uh, my when I was deciding which direction am I going to go with this, my feeling was I wanted to bring the same spirit to writing the opera that I believe Mario Bava brought to the making of the film. And my interpretation of that is that he, what he was trying to do was to make uh, an adventure story uh, that was emotionally rich in, you know, one way or another and do it with extraordinarily limited resources uh, which, you know, that has a lot to do with the fact that Procrustus, the rock monster, is uh, very clearly a man in a foam rubber suit. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, but to, to bring that attitude to the score, so that I figured that I will do it, I will write the score of the opera that way, and then audiences will bring to it whatever they want. Right. Well, he made the film as... In, in seriousness, he wasn't intentionally trying to be campy. No, of if he not. was intentionally trying to be campy, it'd be a, a much different film. But he would made a a serious film that turned out to be campy because of the story that he chose and yes. the acting mm-hmm. and and the the props and the uh, the all all of it you know combined. Yeah, so. but, but you're right. I mean, yeah. I don't think Baba set out to make a movie that was going to be a joke. I mean, he was making something that. That, that he thought would, you know, a serious piece of work that maybe he hoped would stand the test of time. Well, and it, it has. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but not the way he expected. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then you've written a serious score. It's, I mean, there's, it, it would be different if you'd written it as a campy score. And, oh, like, you know, a la I mean, Peter Shickley. Yeah, but I think that it, yeah. it works wonderfully oh, because the campiness of the film and the cuts that they made and and some of the dialogue that's obviously changed uh, uh, significantly um makes the whole thing work together and it brings those funny aspects out and all of this stuff you know it just it i thought it was I, yeah, I loved again, it. we loved, I loved it. it. <laughs> I mean, so when we're when, thinking about going to Nashville in, yeah, in January, yeah, we're actually so. we're actually toying with the idea of seeing it in Nashville. So wonderful. When you were uh, putting this all together, I mean, were there some unique challenges to doing something like this as opposed to anything you had done before? Oh, you can't even imagine. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, I, I was so. When, you know, when they, when Opera Theater Oregon decided that, okay, you're, you're the boy for this, so, you know, you got it. Um, that was in, that decision was made in, if I remember correctly, September of 2009, and, uh, opening of the show was going to be the middle of May of 2010. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And oh, my. I was, That's I was a short so, turnaround time. Woo! <laughs> that's well, really you know, short. The thing is, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is that typically uh, doing a a, a score, uh, a, a a traditional score for a feature film, it, it takes ballpark wise six to eight weeks um, on average, and and this was a short film. 
74 minutes, so I thought, oh, well, I've done plenty of feature films. This should be a snap. Uh, <laughs> oh, I was I was so not correct about that. Oh, boy. You never you know, say that. It, there, <laughs> yeah, there, there were so many things that I didn't understand when I got involved in the project uh, that I came to understand very, very quickly. Uh, I mean, I assumed that, well, obviously I'm going to have to do some study about how to write for the voice. That's an understatement. (laughs) But, you know, um, and fortunately I have a number of friends who are, are professionals in the opera business that I could, I could go to them and get, you know, advice. But one of the things that I didn't realize was going to be as hard as it was, was I had to take all of the dialogue from the, the movie. And when I say the dialogue, I mean the English dialogue from that particular version of the film. I had to transcribe it so I had it all written down, and then I had to rewrite all of it into the libretto for the opera so that, you know, first of all, it would in some way convey the original meaning of the story, uh, that it would, um, it, you know, I would be able to make it synchronize up to a point with the mouth movements of the actors on the screen uh, and most importantly, that it would be singable, you know, because there is so much that goes into writing for the voice that involves what what are the words that you're going to expect a singer to to sing, you know, and you you have to be very, very aware of the the dramatic flow of a particular line if you want it to, if you want an opera singer to be able to sing it with anything approaching expression and emotion and feeling and things like that, which if you're not going to do that, I I don't know what the point would be. So uh, that was extremely uh, difficult to do and very challenging. And then, of course, just the sheer technicality of trying to get the score uh, and in particular, not not just the overall score, but the the um, the vocal lines to uh, synchronized with the mouth movements of the actors on the screen was I- incredibly challenging. Uh, and, you know, you can, as you all saw uh, when both of you came and saw the show, you can only just sort of get close with it. Oh, right. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. To, if you, if you know about the film that Christopher Lee spoke Italian and English in that, I mean, he, mm-hmm. he actually spoke Italian and then it wasn't even his voice that they translated into English. Yeah, so yeah like, somebody else dubbed it. To to see him, you can tell, and, and Reg Parker, I think, only spoke English right. in the film. But you have other, so, but many yeah. of the other characters, they're, they're speaking, or at least they're, they're clearly uh, dialoguing in, in Italian. So, yeah, the, obviously yeah, there's a challenge there. I would imagine that there. was a challenge. <laughs> so there is some challenge to, to definitely try to get your, your singers to be synced up with what they're seeing on the screen. Like, I mean, obviously that must have been enormously difficult. Uh, yes, it, it, it really was. Um, and, of course, making that, you know, the other thing, of course, is you, you in doing so, um, if you try and get it too tight like rhythmically tight and you do it by using you know, all kinds of strange meters and changing the the tempo every other measure and stuff like that uh you might be able to get it you know five percent 
tighter, but then you end up with a score that really is not performable, uh, even by professionals, uh, because typically, you know, you, you don't get a lot of rehearsal time. So, uh, you know, you have to, I had to make a lot of decisions about, okay, so what is going to be a performable score? Uh, the thing that worked in my favor, um, and once again, this is, uh, this is further proof that I'm an incredibly lucky individual, uh, is what I have found, because now, now that Hercules has been produced a number of times, is that if the, if the singing is close enough to the mouth movements uh, on the screen, the audience, if the audience can become invested in the story and in the characters, uh, their mind will tend to tighten it up a little bit for them and, and people sort of will, will get it naturally. And they'll, they'll fill in that last little three to 4% of accuracy and, and it becomes hopefully satisfying. Yeah. I, I, we're, we're accustomed to watching foreign films anyway, so, you know, it doesn't matter. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's and, right. It's right. up yeah, with watching exactly. um, uh, an opera, you know, a, a classic opera and you're seeing the subtitles while it's being played. But, you know, you, if you allow yourself to get, as you said, invested into it, eventually you reach a point where on some subconscious level, you're now understanding everything that's being said without thinking, you know, that you're reading subtitles. So I'd imagine it's got to be the that's same correct. way. So let me ask yeah. a question about the the orchestra and the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, what like voicing or arrangements the, or what? Yeah, the arrangement. Did you do the arrangement for the orchestra or did you just do the piano score? Oh no, I did the whole thing. Oh, you did the okay. impressive cool. because I I noticed that the orchestra was an odd mix. I, there was there was no flute that I noticed. No, I saw one clarinet. Uh, the only brass that I saw were like two French horns, lots of strings. Three. Uh, there are oh, three. three horns. Okay, yeah. and, and lots yeah. of strings. Yeah, and three three violas, uh, one cello, and one bass. Was it? Yeah, and two percussions. I think. Yeah. So I, I thought that was yeah was that, really interesting. Well, you know. Um, and thank you for your your kind remarks about the the orchestration of the thing. Um, the thing there were two things that drove the the orchestration decisions. The first and foremost uh, were the um, the financial limitations of the production. Right. You know, uh, if it was up to me, of course, I would want a bigger <laughs> orchestra, sixty piece orchestra. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> Go back well, there. Sure. I mean, I. I think any any composer would want that because you know if you get the full orchestra, you you can go. There are many many coloristic type things you can do with the music, um, but you know um, there there is a um, what am I trying to say? Uh, budgetary considerations uh, in in professional opera and symphonic music are 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 very real things. You know. Um, and these are the things that um, you know the leadership of the organization have to take into consideration, and say, well, okay, you can have this many instruments and that many only. You can tell us which instruments you want, but you get, you know, in in the case of Hercules, uh, twenty six uh, players in the orchestra, and so you know I, I had to figure out, okay, so if I get twenty six players. What is the arrange? What are the the players that I want 
and how am I going to use them? Um, and then, you know, that became sort of a, a decision there. The other consideration uh, that in the case of Hercules is uh, an important one, though was not the most important one, is that as, as you all saw, the arrain in, in performance, you have the, the movie screen, you know, a 60-foot wide movie screen where the film is projected, and directly underneath it, we have the cast um, that are, you know, essentially doing it as they would like an oratorio. You know, they're all right. mm-hmm. dressed in black. They have the score in front of them. Uh, you know, they aren't in costume or anything. And then in front of, uh, and they're on like a low riser, and then in front of them are is the orchestra and the conductor. Um, and the issue with that is that when you have that big of an orchestra in between the singers and the audience, there's a little bit of an issue with projection over the orchestra. You know, if you put the orchestra down in a pit, it's different. Um, well, that's an interesting point. Because I was wondering, yeah, yeah, go ahead, please. No, just just in general, that becomes a, a consideration, uh, and in, in that regard, I think it's good that financially I was limited to 26 players, because if I had 60 players up there, honestly, that probably would have been a catastrophe, and it would have made me look like an idiot. Okay, well, so so uh, the, the th- now I did notice that uh, when we saw it uh, Saturday night, how, yes, I saw the orchestra was uh, at floor level, and I thought that was an interesting technique. Um, is there some sort of, of, of a, a reason behind it? Because I, um, on Sunday, I spoke to the conductor, and he mm-hmm. said that he felt that Saturday night was a, was a catastrophe because they had never rehearsed in the hall, so they played too loudly. And he, and he knew that you know going into Sunday, they were going to really tone it down. But is there some reason as to why the orchestra would need to be at that kind of level? Um, as opposed to being normally I, sunk into a pit like they usually are for most operas. Well, um, possibly to get the the fullness of sound with a you know I mean the twenty six players is still a relatively small uh, um, ensemble. I mean typically like you know if you go to see Don Giovanni or Marriage of Figaro, Barber of Seville, something like that, uh, you're going to be dealing with an orchestra of about uh, 35 to 40 players, something like that. So 26 players is still a little on the small side. Um, And, um, you know, so if you raise them up a little bit, you get a little more sound out of them. Um, But, you know, um, anytime you're dealing with live performance, where you're going from one venue to another, one hall to another, uh, there, there's always an adjustment that has to be made. And um, Sean, Sean Galvin, the, the conductor, uh, who, who is a terrific conductor uh, that, that I have the greatest respect for, who has actually uh, now conducted Hercules in two different uh, productions, um, you know, certainly it would have been ideal if after uh, performing it in Tucson, 
at the Fox Theater down there, which is also a great theater, we could have had a rehearsal in the uh, Symphony Hall in Phoenix. That would have been ideal because then, you know, we can make adjustments. But that just was not in the cards, you know, because once again, that gets into financial considerations and all that. Um, so you, you know, you, you work with it, you make adjustments, uh, and there you go. Yeah. I, I thought the, the score was, was wonderful. And, and the Sunday performance, we sat on the front row and I thought it was interesting that the, the first and second violins were on the left of the conductor. And then there were the three violas were right there on the right. I mean, that's not an unusual place to put them, but normally it's first and second violins are on the front and then violas and cellos are kind of in the middle. And I, I played viola for uh, 10 years. So, and I, oh, okay. I was able to hear them play and I, I got up and I, I said to them, you know, of the 10 years that I played viola, I never appreciated what we ever did, but to hear what you wrote for them and what they did, it gave me a whole new appreciation for the music that the violas play. And of course they, we li always live for the, that viola moment that is this <laughs> soaring thing, you know, that's about five seconds long, well, and, and, you know, and the rest of the time you're doing the um, pa, pa. Right. You know, and you know, pardon the pun, but many times the violas, the violas do have to play second fiddle to the violin. You know? Exactly. You know, I, I'm but sorry. I, I had to say but that. Um, yeah. Thank you. I'll be here all week. <laughs> yeah. But it, well, you know, I, I do, I'm, I'm glad, uh, that, you know, that that worked out well. Um, and, and I do in general think that, uh, the viola is a, is an underappreciated instrument. Oh, it's a beautiful instrument. It really is. And I, I anyway, I just had, I said that and all three of them, their faces lit up. And, oh yeah. You know, big smiles, <laughs> and, you know, well, yeah, they don't get the appreciation. Yeah. The violists, yeah. The violists don't get the love that they deserve. You know, in fact, I would say that for just about any instrumentalist, you know, aside from, you know, the, the, the popular lead instruments, the trumpet, uh, sometimes the flute, but, and the violins, you know, first violin, second violins. I mean, they, they're the ones who always get the love. Yeah. So yeah, and, and it was interesting. I heard some nuances. In, oh yeah, in the music sitting in the front row there that uh, we didn't hear. Of course, our seats are way we're we're way back under the the balcony under the sound drop. and just because we're cheap. <laughs> but we're, we're probably going to increase our our seats next year. Yeah, but uh, it was a something... joy to hear it in yes. the front row. Oh, absolutely. Oh man, yes. I I heard texture and lines. That sort of got lost, and and I'm not. I don't think it's necessarily the arrangement. I think it's just because of where we were sitting Saturday night that mm -hmm. we, we were acoustically we were in a bad spot. Yeah. So we a lot of stuff got lost, but hearing it in a, in the front row, it 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 just had new life to it. Yeah. I mean, we we could hear it. It just wasn't as clear as obviously sitting on the front row. <laughs> You hear everything. Well, you know yeah. that's yeah, and you know that that's true in pretty much any concert hall anywhere. That uh, even some of the really great concert halls of the world, uh, you know, there are, can be very substantial differences from one seat in the hall to another in a different location, and that's that is part of the um, the nature of going to hear music played live. Absolutely. So. Um, well, I guess now, uh, so where, where's Hercules going? I mean, right. we talked a little bit earlier about how, uh, we're, we're looking at, uh, seeing it in Nashville. I mean, is, is it now, 
it, is it kind of getting its second wind in terms of uh, recognition and uh, performance? Because it's it's only been done. It was done in in Oregon and in what North North Carolina, North Carolina I think, and L A. L A. And then here. So we're the fourth place. Yes. Yes, uh, and and also uh, one one footnote to that version that was performed in Portland uh, that was very substantially different from the version that you heard that was done in LA and that you heard in Arizona and the the reason for that is that when LA decided to do it they said well we will give you a bigger orchestra because the, the orchestra I had in Portland uh, was 14 players oh, wow. uh, LA said we will go as high as 26 so I went in and made uh, some substantial revisions to the score to take advantage of that orchestra. But uh, but you're right. Um, I'm incredibly lucky that um, Hercules seems to have uh, a life to it. Um, y- you know, for a composer to get an opera performed by a professional opera company even once uh, is a- an incredible stroke of good fortune. But to get it performed more than once is, you know, that's like, I don't know, it's like winning the music lottery or something. (laughs) Uh, And, and, you know, to get to hear it performed by different professional organizations, you you learn a lot about the work. Uh, And in terms of where it's going next, uh, as you pointed out, this coming January, Nashville Opera is producing it. Um, And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Uh, and then we have, uh, when I say we, um, I mean my agent and I, who, uh, as a result of the L.A. production, I, you know, I now have an agent. Uh, and uh, You have people. That, that's part of being living in L.A. and, and producing something in L.A. Yeah, and now, now anytime uh, anybody wants to do let you know, your people can talk to my people. Oh, yeah. Oh, I got people. Don't worry about that. <laughs> No people. I, I have an, I have I have both an agent and a publicist. Oh my gosh. Outstanding. <laughs> so uh, you were but, gonna say that you it, there's something you and, else yeah, in the Yeah, you and your agents. Yes? Uh yeah. We're uh, you know, there are definitely uh interest in Hercules seems to be increasing, not decreasing. Yay. Um good. Which I'm I'm thrilled about that and also uh, we're starting to move in the direction of international bookings for Hercules. Oh, wow. oh fantastic! That would be great. So I I just want to say that this was kind of a a mission of uh, the Spark Group here at Arizona Opera to bring opera to people that may not have been exposed to opera before. Mm -hmm. And I just think that it was a brilliant, brilliant idea to do this. And we saw, we encouraged Arizona opera to seek out Phoenix comic con because, you know, I mean, it's genre and horror and and everything else combined there. And they had a wonderful Mm -hmm. booth. And we talked to a number of people after the performance on Sunday uh, well, Saturday and Sunday, mm-hmm. that had picked up tickets at solely Phoenix because Comic-Con. of Comic Con, exactly. And the one guy, uh, well, one of them was a friend of ours, and he had never been to an opera before, and he said it was one of the most incredible experiences that he had ever had in his life. Mm-hmm. 
And she <laughs> said it was the best experience he'd ever had yeah. in his life. Or and the most epic, wondrous. I mean, but yeah. he used all these fin- positive superlatives and, to describe and he, it. He, you know, he's a Mario Bava fan. And I mean, that's why he came to the thing and, and all of this, but never been to an opera before. Same with the other gentleman that we talked to. He said, Oh my gosh, I may actually have to see what other, you know, operas are being performed and, and experience something that's more mainstream where, and I thought this is a great way to introduce people. And I thought it was, you get the horror fans to come and watch this thing because it's like watching the film with a film score and, but the dialogue is sung. Yeah. So it, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. And I, something that I thought was really interesting also um, and I saw this on Saturday night. I was just passed by one of the tables that was set up in the lobby, and someone had a copy of I I it, I I don't know if it's a monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly. I don't know what it is, but it's some sort of um, international opera magazine. And Arizona Opera was mentioned, and this production of Hercules was mentioned. I mean, we're in the back of the magazine. Okay, fine, but we're still mentioned. And and Her- Hercules versus the Vampires was the feature. In that particular wow. article, so <laughs> well, that, I didn't know that, but that that's amazing. Yes, yeah, so that just I find that I find that to be terribly exciting, uh, and that this is I, I mean, do you think we might be seeing uh, a, like a posi- a possible wave of the future? Um, you mean of of interest in Hercules versus vampires? Well, possible well, that, but also maybe hybrids. Yeah, doing more well, hybrid work like that. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, many people have asked me, well, are you going to do another another thing like this, you know, a film synchronization opera? And um, and my, my feeling about that is that, you know, it, of course, would depend on the individual project. You know, I mean, if, you're, if, I, if you were going to try and do it with a mainstream film, um, something with, you know, big stars in it, something, you know, a well-known film. Um, if you could find the right film that would have, you know, the right um, artistic qualities to it and that, you know, where an audience would be interested in actually seeing it, then you have to deal with permissions. Uh, and for a mainstream film, you're, it, you know, it isn't just who owns the copyright to the film, because you have uh, separate crop copyrights, one for the film, the other for uh, the script, the screenplay, uh, very likely has a different copyright. And then there's uh, the performers. You, oh, yeah. You have to get, <laughs> yeah. So you, and then you have to get uh, permission from the studio, probably from the director, probably from the screenwriter. And, you know... I can only imagine, uh, you know, going to, um, I don't know, Quentin Tarantino and saying, uh, oh, by the way, I would like to take your dialogue for Pulp Fiction, which clearly you worked very, very hard to, to get it to be as great as it is, and it certainly is incredibly great, and say, oh, and by the way, I'm going to change this to make it singable. I'm sure that Mr. Tarantino would just be, you know, would just love that. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as you, you never you know. know so that. <laughs> but as you said earlier, I mean, when, when Portland was looking at this, they were looking at films that were public domain. Okay, yeah, so, they, so there, yeah. Was, there was a, a breakdown when it, came, when it came to Hercules and the Underworld. But yeah. still, 
there are a lot of films out there which have kind of like been forgotten that maybe are worthy of kind of being revisited and maybe hybrid opera is the means by which that can happen. Yeah, sure. I mean, sure, that's possible. Um, and and there's certainly lots of films out there that that would be a, a good possible choice for that. But once again, you get into the issue of, you know, with any kind of a genre film, especially if it's older than about, I don't know, 20, 30 years or so, you get into the issue of determining who owns what because then you have, you have to deal with the legal issue. Then you also have to figure out, is there an existing print, either a film print or a digital file, that is in good enough condition Absolutely. that you could put it up on a big screen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah that's, that's... You know, and you could, take, you could take like an older print that's in bad shape, and you could have it digitally restored, but now you're talking about investing somewhere between somewhere in the vicinity of fifty to eighty thousand dollars. Oh yeah, it's exactly. not cheap to oh, have yeah. that done. Yeah, so it, there are there are a lot of uh, speed bumps you have to get over. Yeah. But su- it's suffice to say, it's safe to say that if the opportunity presented itself and all the pieces fell in the right places, that you wouldn't necessarily be opposed to doing another one. Oh, that's certainly true. I mean, if if all of the variables, you know, were were pointing in the direction of, you know, this is a good idea. Oh, absolutely, I, I would uh, I would consider it. Um, I actually thought about that and came up with a couple of different ideas for films that I thought would be good for that. You know, uh, but. It, like we were just discussing there, there are so many things that would have to line up correctly uh, that I I don't know that I would want to do it unless it was a commissioned work. But sure, if, if everything, if everyone was, was nodding yes at the same time, absolutely. Yeah. That's cool. Fantastic. So uh, I know that you were here in Arizona for both performances, the ones in, in Tucson and then those in Phoenix. So you kind of had a vacation to the sunny Arizona. How how was uh-huh. that? How was that for you? Coming to, oh, coming I to love Arizona. State? Cool. And, and <laughs> absolutely. Then, um, go ahead. No, I, I was coughing. Sorry. It just. <laughs> oh. Okay. And, and then so uh, you spent time with uh, the folks at Arizona Opera, and I I assume got to know them well. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, uh. Arizona Opera is a wonderful organization. Um, you mentioned Joe Spector earlier, who is the, the CEO and general director. Um, he is a great guy, uh, and and all of the people who work there, um, you know, um, you know Ashley Parks, who's wonderful, uh, Zach Hayhurst. Um, I, I wish I could mention everyone. Oh yeah, but those are some of the the folks that I dealt with most closely. Uh, and they are, they are, as an organization, are really committed to to producing really high quality uh, opera, and uh, and it was just a joy to work with them. Uh, and you know, Arizona as a place is is a place that I really like. I've been to a bunch of times, and uh, you know, uh, the audiences that we had there in Arizona were fantastic. They were really, really into the story and into the characters. 
which, you know, for a composer, for a thing like this is great because you never really know if anyone's paying attention, you know. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like they're playing something that you work very hard to try and make it not terrible. And you always wonder, you know, is everyone out there, are they texting? Are they thinking, huh, do I want Chinese food or do I want Mexican food? <laughs> what are we going to do afterwards? <laughs> so, yeah, and, or, uh, huh, I wonder how soon this is going to be over. Oh, gosh. Exactly. I, that, need, that's the worst I need thing. a drink. <laughs> yeah, when they start looking at their watch. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so so it was, it was wonderful being there, it, right. not just in Arizona with the audiences here, but also definitely with Arizona Opera. Yeah, Joe's a, a great guy, oh, and I, I think that his – his sensibilities and, and his background really are going to uh, do wonderful things for Arizona Opera. So clearly you're, oh, not, I agree. you're not just resting on your laurels regarding Hercules versus the vampires. Obviously, you must have other projects that you are currently working on. What's coming up in the future for you in terms of what you're doing? Well, even as we speak, I'm I'm here in my, my studio in Los Angeles, and I'm working on a violin concerto, um, which, you know, for somebody who is not a violinist, uh, there's, there's a whole lot of study that invo- is involved with trying to make, it, trying to write a violin concerto that is not completely terrible. Uh, well, that's, the two I things I have going that. for, I ha- the I things hate- I have going for me, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it never even dawned on me uh, about uh, someone writing a concerto for a particular piece of music who isn't, who doesn't play that instrument? I, it just never never occurred to me before. That's got to be a very unique challenge. Well, you know that I take solace in the realization that most of the the great violin concertos in the violin repertoire were written by composers who were themselves not virtuoso violinists, mm-hmm. with the exception um, of Paganini. <laughs> well, sure. Well, yeah, you have Paganini, and then you have. Uh, all the works that you know Pablo de Sarasate wrote, uh, and all of those those wonderful things. Uh, but then again, you know uh, Tchaikovsky was not oh, yeah. a virtuoso violinist. Um, you know Johannes Brahms. Not that I'm comparing myself to them, but you know you look at the the incredible violin solo violin music that Bela Bartok wrote. Right. Um, and he was he was a pianist. He was not a, a virtuoso violinist. Uh, but you know, but it also involves uh, really, really studying the instrument, studying the literature, and then having having friends who are virtuoso violinists to where you can take something to them and say, "What do you think about this?" And after they get through laughing at you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, then then you you make um, make adjustments. But anyway, so I'm. I'm writing that for a violinist, uh, my dear friend Zi Chen, who is a violinist in Washington, D.C. Uh, and then I have two operas, two operas uh, in development, uh, and we're, we're hoping to get a, uh, a commission to, to write one or the other, or maybe even both of them, uh, in the near future. But uh, right now, they're, they're still under development. Oh, great. Fantastic. So, uh, wow. Um, we have been talking for over an hour. That's amazing. This has been, I mean, it, it's it, been incredible. This Thanks. has been one of the greatest conversations we've had in a long, long time. I can't thank you enough, Patrick. <laughs> so, um, for anybody who wants to know more about, 
uh, what you're working on, upcoming projects, possibly even uh, you know upcoming performances of Hercules versus the Vampires. Um, is there any presence on on the intertubes, uh, social media, websites? I mean, how can people find out more about you? Uh, well, I would direct them to my website, which is simply patrickmorganelli.com, and um, where they can you know learn a little bit about me, and they can hear samples of other work, and um, you know there are some recordings there from Hercules. Uh, there are there's also the um uh the websites for some of the uh the opera companies that have produced it um arizona l a opera i i'm not sure if north carolina opera still has the material up on the, their website but um yeah you, you can look at those uh if anyone wants to contact me you can certainly send me email through my website uh and and one humorous i think story uh, regarding that after the uh, the run of the show in la uh, i received quite a bit of email uh, at my website and one in particular uh, i really tickled me uh, a gentleman sent me an email and he said uh, this past weekend uh, my girlfriend and i and my two cousins went to see hercules versus vampires at the Los Angeles Music Center. Um, I really loved it. I think I would have loved it even if I hadn't been high on mushrooms. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that That is just awesome. <laughs> so do you have a Twitter or Facebook or uh, presence in other places on social media? You know, I don't. I don't. I used to. I used to be on Facebook, but then it it just seemed so odd to me uh, where I kept getting friend requests from people that I didn't know that I had no clear connection with. So I, at a certain point, I just kind of said, uh, you know, there there are so many things in my life that freak me out that I have no control <laughs> over, but I can say no to this. Right. Well, there it is then. Well, that that's good. Then. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, go to patrickmorganelli.com. And we'll thank you so much for being with us this time on the show. This was Holy a smoke. fascinating conversation. This was fun. Thank you so much. This, this was so much fun. What a joy it was to talk to you today. Well, you know, likewise, gentlemen, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, I, I hope we can do this again in the future. I, yes, yes as, as you're getting ready to release another or premiere a new piece of work, we'll be happy to talk to you again. Thank you. Great. I'll look forward to it. All right. All right. Thank you so much. This is Patrick Morganelli, composer of Hercules vs. Vampires, and I am a guest today on the show of The Two Gay Geeks. <laughs> Well, normally uh, we would talk about that. Uh, I, I want to talk about that for that was a fascinating interview. That that was, was a conversation. It oh it was that that's it really what was. those are the kind of uh, conversations that I live for. Yeah, that, it was fantastic. He was so engaging and had such fascinating things to tell. Yeah, and I hope that you, our listeners, enjoyed that uh, as, as much well. as we enjoyed uh, having the conversation. We, we really geeked out about that. It so. was so enjoyable. It for was us. great. So here's a few selected birthdays for October 30th through November 5th, 2017. October 30th, Grace Slick. Of Jefferson Airplane slash... 
starship, starship. slash starship. starship. Yeah. <laughs> also, Henry Winkler and John Adams. Probably my favorite. Are, are we talking now? Are we talking the founding father or are we talking the composer? We're talking about founding father. Oh, thank God! President One of my John. favorite people. <laughs> yes. Also, on October thirtieth is Mario Ortiz. Uh, Works on the project uh, Beyond, Beyond the, the impact. impact. And a filmmaker of ours uh, over in Japan, Pablo Absento. October 31st, Peter Jackson. Michael Collins, the astronaut. He was ah. the one that uh, uh, navigated the lunar module. Okay. Uh, and Or, or the, uh, the, yeah. The. Yeah. That. The yeah. 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 It, also, <laughs> moving right along, Please. Johannes Vermeer, born in 1632. He was a Dutch master, one of the Dutch masters. He was a Dutch painter. Okay. That's just why he got on the list. So, November 1st, Mr. Tim Cook of Apple fame. Just in time to uh, push out the Apple X. Yeah, the Apple <laughs> X, yes. Also on November 1st. Peter Ostra will soon be coming to uh, Phoenix, Phoenix Con Fan Fest. Fan Fest, yeah. So, also as the uh, birthday of a fictional character, Speed Cameron. He's an Arizona superhero. He is an Arizona superhero. Who looks like yeah. a, a Speed Camera. Yeah, and he's uh, uh, written and, and drawn by our friend Rust Kesmerjak. November second, Ray Walston. And Steve Ditko, another comic book artist. Right. Also, Marie Antoinette and Daniel Boone, and they were contemporaries. Were they? Yeah. I mean, not they probably didn't know each other, but they were contemporaries. They they lived. There was a, a period of time that they were both alive together at the same time. So okay. Not alive together, but they were both alive at the same time. There we go. Let's let's get let's move on. Okay, Before November third. <laughs> Before we make it worse, yeah. November third, Dolph Lundgren, Charles Bronson, and John Barry. We now were there's... just talking about him on Friday night. He's the uh, composer, John Barry. Okay, the composer, John Barry, yeah. not the production designer, John no, Barry. No, Two no. different people. Yeah. Uh, also on November third, Vincenzo Bellini, another opera composer, born in eighteen o one. November 4th, Ralph Macchio. Who still looks like he's 12. Yep. Doris Roberts and Loretta Swit. Oh, my goodness. She will be 80. Wow. Hot Lips Houlihan is going to be right. 80. Uh, oh wow. my God. Also, uh, also on November 4th, Will Rogers was born in 1879 in Ulaga, Indian Ulaga? Territory, near I, the city of Ulaga, Oklahoma. I was going to say that's that's got to be Oklahoma. Yep. It was Indian Territory at that time. November 5th, Vivian Lee was born, and uh, she was uh, Gone with the Wind. She mm -hmm. was Scarlett O'Hara. That's right. Also, Roy Rogers, Tilda Swinton, and Art Garfunkel, all on November 5th. Also, November 5th is famous for being Guy Fawkes Day. Remember the Remember river. the 5th, 5th of November, November the, the Gunpowder gun Treason and Plot. I know of no reason why the Gunpowder Treason should ever be forgot. Thank you, V. <laughs> and it was a perfect place to stop it because no, the kidding. music ended, it ended perfectly. Right there. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> and that's it for the perfect birthdays. moment ruined. <laughs> yeah. Leave it to me. <laughs> Another thing not to do. Exactly. <laughs> we'll talk about that.
Hi, my name is Joe Hogan, and I'm a geek. And if you're currently listening to this, there's a good chance you're a geek too. So check out my podcast, Geektitude. Each week, I talk with somebody about their geek aptitude. Sometimes I talk to people in a geeky profession. Sometimes it's someone doing something really cool with their geekiness. Often it's another geeky podcaster. But it's always someone who wants to share their inner geek. So join me each week as we come together to geek out about all the geeky stuff we love. And remember, this week, keep it geek. Head on over to Geektitude and listen to our friend Joe Hogan, who we just saw this weekend. Yeah, I just saw him the other day. Yeah, the podcaster yourself. So now it is time for... What's that music mean? Feedback. Feedback. But very little feedback. Oh. Very, very little feedback today. We only have one article, one, one little comment. Uh, and we've mentioned how we have uh, some new people who are contributing their yeah. their movie reviews to our website at tggeeks.com. And one who's just been really crazy uh, in giving us stuff is Ro. Yay. Oh, she's thank amazing. Thank you so much. You have done wonders for wonders. us. Wonders. So we can't, can't, thank, can't thank you enough, Ro. And she did a review for a movie called The Snowman. And I would just simply point people... Go take a look at it, and you know, Ro, thank you for reviewing the movie because now I know whether I need to see it or not. Yeah. Exactly. Now, <laughs> I will. Now, I will say this: that we did get feedback on our website from someone named Carla, and she's basically echoing what my thought was after I read the review. And she says, "Thank you for saving me time. I'll never get back. Uh, I'll never get back, and money I can spend elsewhere, like on the books." Yeah. So well, that tells me, okay, I think I will spend my money elsewhere. Yeah, there, uh, there is one other little bit of feedback, and actually from Roe herself. Uh, on I shared her Suburbicon review that uh -huh. she released this morning, and <laughs> I said, "Here's Roe's review." So and thank you and blah 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 and shared it, and then she commented and said, "I was a little testy, oh, just a little testy." Was she? <laughs> so, that little feedback there. So oh, well, I think that's that's it for the the feedback. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, baby. They're like two gay geeks. They're together, you know. They're two gay guys and they're geeks. Is that okay? Well, I forgot to say our, the usual thing about the uh, comments. You can comment on our Facebook page. You can comment on our website, on any of the articles and or the um, uh, episodes that we do. You can comment on YouTube. You can even leave us voicemail at 469-TG-Geeks. That is 469-844-3357. I just thought we weren't doing and that remember, anymore. And remember, no, we, we have to. <laughs> It's in the script. Oh. We talked about it yesterday. Yeah. Well, they <laughs> so, have to say now. Please play nice. <laughs> I just thought we weren't doing it anymore since you went right to the music. I Well, I, I you know me. Okay. And a shiny so anyway, object. <laughs> uh, and speaking of shiny objects, we had one heck of a shiny object yesterday. Yeah. We've been really building up to this one for some time now. Yeah, the podcast the yourself. The podcast yourself. PIY um, 2017. Yeah, and that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was tons of fun. It was in conjunction with the release of 
Podcasting for Dummies, third edition by T. Morris and our friend Chuck Tomasi. Well, both of them are friends now, but uh, yeah. we've been friends with Chuck longer than T. Yeah. And uh, it was really fascinating. I got to do a panel on what not to do, and some of the things that I've done today are things not to do. Hmm. So, um, and yesterday. <laughs> and yesterday. I, I was going to bring that up, but it, <laughs> yeah. it, I only do because there there's a, a very humorous sense of irony about that. Oh, yeah. Thing. Very first bullet point was check your equipment and make sure your microphones are working. Yet I was supposed to record some of the sessions, and I did not do that <laughs> on my mobile recording device. So, oops. Oops. Chalk it up to me again. I I'm making all the mistakes, so you don't have to. You're making all the mistakes so that people can have books to write. <laughs> exactly. Is that it? Yeah. You're trying to give the material, but yeah. though you know, it's not all you. Yeah. It's not all you. We found the most amusing editorial error in the book. Oh, no, we're not even going to start. Not going to talk about that. Not ah. going to talk about that. But we are mentioned in the book. I think page seventy-two and uh, a page couple of three forty-two. We're brought up a couple uh, of times. And, there, yeah. It is a, a great book if you have any interest in podcasting or want to know more about podcasting or want to be a podcaster yourself. You know, but it wasn't, it, it's, um, excuse me, <coughs> it's not just that, but it's also for people who are experienced podcasters. I heard some interesting things yesterday yeah. that was some very good food for thought. Um, when you're podcasting on a regular basis, you can, I mean, and we both do this, you tend to lose perspective. Yeah. And we heard things yesterday that, are great reminders on putting things back into perspective and, and yep. preventing yourself from, you know, getting what uh, is referred to as pod sanity. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So it was it, a fantastic experience. I mean, I'm really glad we did it. Uh, there's already talk about doing it again next year, yeah. possibly on the East Coast. And there was uh, the Legends of Podcasting, Michael Manigay and several other, Chuck Tomasi and T. Jack Mangan. Jack Mangan, uh, who uh, were friends with all these people, and they did that. And we actually have two copies, signed copies, of Podcasting for Dummies. We will be giving those away on future shows. So please, think about it. please keep listening. We'll have some kind of contest or some some damn something that we'll uh, <laughs> figure out how to get how, them, how to get give them away. Hands, yeah. So and get them into your hands. And I. That I think that's it, and I think you have a an opinion that uh, you're going to share with you. So I'm going to play that our op-ed intro music. So uh, just watched the latest episode of the Orville, and you know, for anybody who doesn't know, and we've we've said some for the most part some pretty positive things about the show. Uh, this latest episode they had was Majority Rule. And for anybody who doesn't know the story, uh, some four of our crew members of the Orville come down to this planet, it, which is equivalent to 21st century Earth, to search for a couple of anthropologists that they've been lost, that have been lost there. And it's a rule, it's a planet that is ruled by social media and public opinion, the court of public opinion. And one of the crew members, uh, John Lamar, he behaves in a manner that is less than, um, wow, uh, let's just say it was, it, it was offensive. He behaved offensively. And as a result like of that. Like a teenage boy. Like a teenage boy. And as a result, he is now the victim of this court of public opinion through their social media system and is close to being lobotomized. So having said that, I think the concept for this episode was a good one. 
I did not care the slightest bit for the execution. John's behavior was so beyond the pale for me, I actually found it offensive. Now, it is possible that this was supposed to be the point of the episode. Nonetheless, I feel the message could have been delivered much more effectively with something that came off as perhaps a bit more innocuous by our own standards, but clearly offensive to the people on this planet, such as maybe the hat that Alara was wearing. Instead, by going with John's very juvenile antics throughout the entire episode, and it wasn't just the thing that got him in trouble, but he kept behaving in a very juvenile and sophomoric manner throughout the entire story, it felt like that it was pandering to a very inaccurate, stereotypical behavior. Besides, what does this say about a crew member of a union ship who has absolutely zero sense of cultural decorum. Even after he gets busted for his initial act, he still behaves in a juvenile manner. Now again, I thought the story was a great concept about the nature of social media and public opinion, the court of public opinion. But it was a very, very poor execution of this idea. Yes, I know that on Facebook, social media of all places, my opinion is in the minority. I would like to know what all of you think. Thank you very much. Up next time, who knows what we're going to have. We may have another interview or a conversation with somebody. Some of these things, we said this before many times, these things just fall in our laps. The interview with Patrick fell in our laps. You know, we missed something on the script. Yeah, we did. Uh, I shouldn't have played that yet. I'm I'm, I'm way out of it. I'm I'm just thinking about that conversation with with Patrick because we just just recorded that just before recording this. And it just, I was just... I'm, I'm, uh, it was amazing. It really the was. The interview had it was absolutely amazing, yeah. and, and I, I just hope that you know, for all of you who are listening to it, that you get as much enjoyment out of it as we did. Yeah. So obviously, we have our follow-up items. Check our calendar. We got all kinds of stuff on there. Phoenix Comic Con Fan Fest is November 11th and 12th, which is, would be uh, let's see, two weeks. Two weeks. And uh, lots of people there. Check out myfanfest.com for more info. And Phoenix Comic Con is May 24th through 27th, 2018. More info after Fan Fest. We will be in Los Angeles at the Guadalajara Film Festival in L.A. on November 3rd for a screening of Morning After. And possibly other places and, while uh, we're down there, too. You November never know. November 4th is the independent, I can't remember the name of that film festival, but we will be there the 3rd and the 4th and uh, be in L.A. And then we're going to be at Fan Fest on 11th or 12th. And we'll have uh, more things, more sightings of us. Oh, I'm sure. Elsewhere. Yeah. And, of course, everybody knows we're huge supporters of independent creators, filmmakers, comic book artists, writers, etc. If they're doing a crowdfunding campaign, please consider supporting them. You can get involved for as little as a dollar. You never know. You might be part of something big. Special thanks to Doctor Who Talking Who on Twitter, as well as the Human Arkle on Twitter. Doctor Who Talking Who publishes the Doctor Who Fancast Guide. Uh, the Human Arkle publishes the Arkle Times post-dispatch post news. They both republish 
our content on a regular basis. We thank them for that. You can find the fan cast guide by going to Twitter, looking for at talking who you can find the Arkle times post dispatch news by going to Twitter and finding at Arkle who also, by the way, has a presence on Tumblr with the incorrect Star Trek Voyager quotes. Check it out. It's great fun. Just make sure your boss doesn't see you doing it. Yep. And we want to give a shout out to the Looky Show on YouTube. It's Looky Show, and you can check them out. They do a really fascinating movie reviews and TV shows in a very unique way. So check out Looky Show on YouTube. And finally, a great big shout out to the Gay Geek for allowing us to post our episodes on their page. The URL is facebook.com slash group slash the Gay Geek. It's a great page. Great content, and they have a great moderator. His name is Jeremiah Reeves. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremiah. We want to remind you to occasionally click on our Amazon ads. We have those at the bottom of each article and episode, as well as widgets on the side. It doesn't cost anything. If you choose to buy something, use one of our search ads. We'll get a little bit of a kickback, and thank you for your consideration. And lastly, check us out on iHeartRadio, and please rate us and subscribe Rate us and review us on iTunes and subscribe to our YouTube channel. <laughs> yes, so, YouTube. YouTube. Yes, we'll talk about that later. So uh, that's it for our episode. And that's it for TG Geeks webcast this time. Be sure to check out the article for this webcast episode. We'll have several links on the page about things that we talked about. And remember, you can comment on our Facebook page or our website, tggeeks.com, or you can leave a voicemail at 469-TG-GEEKS. That is 469-844-3357. From TG Squared Studios, I'm Keith Lane. Thanks for listening. I bid you peace. Cheers.